over these uh, days here together on retreat. Can can you hear okay? Uh, <clears throat> you may be noticing uh, cycles of of expansion and contraction. Times when the, when the the mind, the heart, the body feels kind of relatively open and spacious, easeful, kind of times of enjoyment. And also then other times when, sometimes for no apparent reason, there's a kind of contraction in, in, the, in the being. And, uh, you know, sometimes it may be around kind of physical pain or a difficult thought, but it just seems to have its its own kind of life of expansion and contraction and can be helpful just to remind ourselves that everything in nature does this you know it's not just uh, me it's not just my heart you know the seasons do it as as we're being reminded right now moving from a time of contraction into the beginnings of expansion the moon does it the tides do it, our relationships expand and contract, you know, our, our family life, uh, communities, even the economy, you know, it's the way of things, expansion and contraction and some, sometimes really kind of reflecting that and seeing that can actually help support a greater equanimity with that, you know, a greater sense of just allowing these cycles of expansion and contraction, not taking them so personally or, or, as, or kind of believing what the mind says about them. <laughs> you know? Isn't it so easy when we're in a contracted state? It just creates a world of contraction. You know, creates projections of the future and the past that are based around low mood. <laughs> you know? The whole sense of time seems to be involved in the contraction, created from the contraction. Mm. And you know, the, the Buddha very clearly identified what it is that um, the, f- the factors that, that amplify or we could say intensify the contraction, the, the, what it is that, that adds the kind of distress, dissatisfaction, difficulty to the ordinary vulnerabilities and changing tonalities of life, we could say. It's really the kind of, such a, the core insight that the Buddha gave in the teaching of the four noble or ennobling truths that that the origins of this kind of distress and dissatisfaction that, that somehow gets added and that intensifies the contraction is the basic reactivity to the pleasant, the unpleasant, the neutral tonality of things. The craving or grasping after the pleasant, the the, the pushing away the aversion, the rejecting of the unpleasant and the kind of drifting off uh, and kind of numbing uh, in relation to the more neutral. 
do we sense that? Can we feel that? It's, it's so helpful really to contemplate what, what he's saying in this. You know, that just that basic sense of it's wanting things to be different from how they are. You know? This is the origin of, of the discontent that the, Buddha, the Buddha's teachings seem, are so kind of seek to address. The discontent which, which uh, intensifies the cycles, you know, that makes the contractions so much more difficult to bear. You know. And the four ennobling truths teach and, and lay out the, the, the training in ethics and in collectedness and in understanding that gradually, progressively, over time, can diminish that reactivity that makes life so much more difficult. That can, can really begin to uproot some of the habits of grasping and rejecting and identification that are the kind of genesis of dis-ease with the way life is. And as we look at these teachings and... and, and kind of practice this path, we can see that actually, although we could say the immediate cause in the moment of the kind of distress or reactivity that amplifies, you know, the contractions of, of our lives is kind of grasping and rejecting, the underlying cause is a kind of basic misunderstanding. This at least is the Buddha's hypothesis that each of us is invited to, to kind of check with our own experience that actually a lot of the grasping and rejecting arise because we're actually not seeing things clearly as they are. Can we sense that? You know, the, this is the, the sense that it's actually understanding things as they are that, that frees, that liberates. And so, really, the, the kind of central journey of this path, we could say, is the development, the deepening of understanding and of insight. You know, insight, which is the, 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 the seeing clearly. We, we could say, perhaps, that insight is any seeing clearly, any seeing or understanding that diminishes distress, dissatisfaction, discontent and the grasping and rejecting that give rise to it to whatever degree. Yeah? That, that, that actually seeing oh yeah, I've been doing that and I don't need to anymore. You know? that, that kind of understanding we can feel there's a, just a slight alleviation. So many of you have been reporting noticings in the groups, things you've noticed that actually feel like they kind of make a difference. To whatever degree, even if it's just very slightly, I see, okay, you know, that the habit of planning. Maybe I don't have to follow those thoughts, the kind of relentless planning that the mind engages with. So... Uh, would like just this evening to reflect a bit on, on different dimensions of insight. 
bearing in mind that that there's a difference between a kind of intellectual knowing and you know like I can know the truth of impermanence at some level and insight which is actually a more experiential it's it's more what you've been describing in the groups where actually seeing in a way that feels like it makes a difference feels like there's something kind of uh, that releases in that seeing and uh, broadly speaking uh, it's such a f- it's such a, a big topic so just kind of a bit of an overview and a few kind of perspectives on it. We could think in terms of personal insight and more universal insight. So personal insight would be the, the, the seeing patterns and habits that are more particular to me. You know, it may be that I share them with others. So, you know, the planning or the judging, you know, the daydreaming, you know. But actually, I can also sense that there's a kind of personal dimension to them. They're not universally true of everybody or everything. D- d- does that make sense? You know? So, yeah, if we think about kind of patterns and habits, and, and yeah, m- many of you have been, been noticing some of the patterns and habits that show up when we stop and look. You know? Those patterns of of uh, kind of ruminating or, or of judging myself and judging others. Anybody not been doing that, by the way? You know, both of those? <laughs> you, know, you can see it's a very you know, cultural habit <laughs> as well. You know, catastrophizing some of the ways in which we... Um, Relate. We 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 sense how our, our, a lot of our habits are, are kind of interpersonal, aren't they? How I relate to people, what I project onto them, yeah, what I, I find myself doing around people who I uh, feel um, uncomfortable with, you know, or I put on a pedestal, or I kind of feel I want to feel superior to, you know. And just to notice these kind of psychological patterns and habits that show up. You know, as, as Martin said, in some ways it's, it's one of the, uh, the opportunities of being on silent retreat is to see how we create self and other you know, in, in so many different ways. And sometimes it's quite kind of, wow, <laughs> I'm I kind of surprised at how strong that can be can look forward to Wednesday morning and see what it's like when we kind of meet and speak. Personal insights could also be in relation to stories that we've come to believe about ourselves and our lives and our journeys. You know, the things things we tell ourselves and others about, you know, how we have tried to make sense of past events and experiences. You know, the difficulties as well as the, the delights and the triumphs. Those stories that, as Martin pointed out, often have, I always dot, 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 or I never dot, dot, dot. <laughs> the self-images 
that we can find, often connected with those stories. You know, self self images of you know I've got to do things perfectly. Or or uh, I've got to take care of other people's needs and somewhat neglect my own. Or the stories of of I've got to be in charge here, you know. Or feelings of kind of inadequacy or that there's something wrong with me. And of course, you know, there's there's nothing wrong with stories. We 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 live in stories. They're how, where they're how we give meaning. We in, kind of inhabit them. They're indispensable to to being a human being. The question is, how do we hold them? And do we tell them, or do they tell us? You know? How how do you relate to the stories that you tell about your life? You know? And of course, some stories are helpful. They they can be reclaiming, they can be honoring, they can be healing. You know, personally, collectively, are some of our community stories. Something can be kind of seen and and released by by retelling the story of that time in my childhood in a different way. You know? And we can see how often we kind of become cramped by stories. A bit like, you know, wearing clothes that we've grown out of or or shoes that we've grown out of, you know. And they kind of pinch us a bit. And we find that actually the stories I've been telling are, are more disempowering. Are more kind of limiting in a certain way there or stories of unworthiness that somehow seem to uh, kind of deplete or or sabotage a sense of confidence or a sense of creativity or a sense of capacity to try something new And, and we begin to see that it's always possible to tell a different story no, no story can ever tell the whole truth. The, the, the truth is always going to be much, much, much more complex and rich and uh, kind of plural, in a sense, than any story or self-image that I may identify with. Can, can we sense that? It's it's so important to see that because we can become so kind of fundamentalist about our stories and actually to, to have the sense of allowing our experience to have been more complex than we often take it to be. And there is a way, isn't there, that, that, that this practice that we're doing of, of mindfulness and and kindness and appreciation and it's it's really I always find it so moving to to witness how when we practice in this way, there's a sense of these patterns and beliefs and stories and things we've got identified with somehow kind of decompressing into awareness. 
You know, I suddenly see something about the way I've been doing myself. Can we relate to that? You know, or what I've been believing about myself. Or a habit that I thought was just kind of the way I was meant to be. And then I kind of discover, oh no, maybe it's optional. <laughs> you know, the habit of self-judgment or kind of overriding my own needs. You know, and we sense that so much of this, this, this work is, is, is about what we're cultivating in the moment and that cultivating mindfulness, cultivating appreciative joy that really nourishes the heart, cultivating a sense of kindness and friendliness. This, well, it's, it's not even that I have to let go of them. It's almost they let go of themselves when these qualities are cultivated. Can you, can you feel that? Christina Feldman, who's kind of co-founder of Gaia House, sometimes says, she says, I don't think I've let go of anything, actually, in my life. I mean, there's been a lot of letting go that's happened, but it's not been me doing it, you know. There's just been a sense of cultivating these qualities that are conducive to seeing clearly the patterns. And in the seeing clearly, there is a sense of a changed relationship with them, a sense that something lets go. Can we feel this? Do you, do you sense this? You know. And these can be just very slight, you know, very slight patterns. Just notice little patterns of mind or little beliefs that I've got identified with. You know, I'm never going to be able to do this. You know, and actually find, oh, here we are. Here I am. You know, I'm even enjoying it. <laughs> you know. We sense that uh, what we're cultivating moment by moment is, is really the, the key factor that uh, determines the flavor of our experience and the degree to which we kind of endorse and deepen the contractions, you know, or limit the expansions. So this, this domain of, of uh, kind of personal insight where we see patterns, we see stories, we see beliefs, we see projections. You know, we see what has happened in a certain way when our innate sensitivity has come into contact with the changeable, unpredictable um, tonalities and feeling tones of life. You know, right from, you know, maybe even before we were born, you know, and kind of those who study prenatal psychology have this sense of, you know, a sentience that, that actually is affected by impingements, you know, and we can certainly see this in children, babies, can't we? And just see how kind of over time impingements and, you know, protective defenses can easily kind of harden into well, what the Buddha described them as kind of bindings. Bindings that limit our capacity for freedom or capacity for joy or capacity for uh, 
kind of freshness, a fresh meeting of life rather than just a habitual meeting of life. And there's a dimension of the personal that I just want to name, partly because it doesn't so much get honoured in the, the traditional Buddha Dharma, which is the kind of dimension of what we could call character and calling. You know, that, that we could call the kind of healthy personal shaping of who we kind of find over time ourselves to be. And sometimes it can seem as if that, that kind of distinctiveness, that individuality, you know, part of the, the, the kind of miracle of, of life is just how we're each so individual, aren't we? And have our kind of distinctive flavoring. And there can be a way sometimes in which it can feel as if that individuality is being sort of blanched or compressed by a kind of Dharma practice that, that, that wants to see everything in terms of universals rather than to honour, you know, the particular calling, the particular kind of vocation that each life can, we can discover that each life seems to have, you know. And some of you also have spoken and, and some of you who've been here for years will probably have places around the garden or around the house where you may have had insights about somehow your path or your calling, or what you were feeling called to at this time in your life. You know, I certainly, after I think 22 years of coming here on retreat, really have that sense of, wow, as well as some of the kind of more neurotic, some of the more neurotic habits and bindings kind of uh, dissolving a bit. You know, there's also that sense of kind of discovering over time a bit more of who one is in a certain way, and, and what, what, you know, this heart, this life kind of feels called to or called by, what inspires, you know. And so really, this practice can also support that, really can sort of release our individuality rather than just kind of overriding it. Th th does that make sense? It feels a very important kind of piece to add there. Um, a kind of honouring of who we, we find ourselves to be as we grow through life and there is the profound value of the Buddha's more kind of universal insights that turn out not just to be true of, of me or uh, my particular shaping but actually kind of universally true the Dharma uh, kind of part of the freedom it offers is, is seeing the personal through the lens of the liberating universal. In fact, we could say that one translation of this word dharma, which, which is the kind of in the Indian languages, can, can be translated as truth or teaching or way. It's also a kind of natural law. It's kind of the way things work. And uh, to sense how uh, to see our experience through those more universal lenses can be powerfully freeing. We uh, kind of align us more deeply with an understanding of the way things actually are. You know, 
rather than the misunderstandings that give rise to the grasping and rejecting. And, you know, there's so much that could be said about universal insight, but, but in the tradition there are three particular universal insights that are seen as powerfully liberating because they, they, they challenge the beliefs that give rise to the grasping and rejecting. They challenge the, the, the misunderstandings on which the kind of craving and reactivity is based. And these are the insights into impermanence, into unsatisfactoriness, and into not-self. And we can sense that, you know, we don't tend habitually to see things in those kind of ways. We, we tend, don't we, to see things in terms of permanence. You know, we, we, we pursue or we reject things because of a kind of belief that there's a certain permanence about them, a certain solidity about them. Because there's a belief that they, they could satisfy either by getting them or getting rid of them. And because of a sense that this is who I am and who others are. And really to start to kind of contemplate these truths, just to try them out, the, the, the teachings on impermanence, on unsatisfactoriness and not-self, to move from the more intellectual level of kind of beginning to apprehend them, deeper in our being. The Buddha, in fact, identified three tiers of insight into Dharma. He said the first tier is the tier of hearing, where I might hear or kind of read a book about or you know, listen to a podcast about uh, these kind of teachings and begin to get a sense of, oh yeah, there's something there. You know? There's something there. And then the, the next tier is, is, is the tier of reflection where I really start to reflect, well, what sense do I make of this in my own experience? You know, what sense do I make of the teaching of impermanence in my own experience or the teaching of not-self in my own experience? How does that kind of apply? And then the kind of deeper level is what he called insight through cultivation, where we actually kind of practice metabolizing and naturalizing these insights so that they, they become more the way in which we see things. We could say we kind of get to know in our bones these truths in a more unshakable way. And, and we get a sense from that. And you may, you know, whether you've been on retreat or not, you may kind of notice that generally to see something once isn't enough. Can you, can you feel that? You know, you may have come on retreat before and seen something really clearly and then kind of somewhat lost touch with it. Yeah? Do we, do we, I hope it's not just me to whom this happens. Yeah, do we, yeah. You, you get that sense that actually, okay, I did see something there, but, but it actually kind of needs to be practiced. It's almost like insights land us on a fence where, where we could just tip back into the old way of seeing and the kind of, pull of daily life and habits and obligations and all of that tends to 
to do that. But actually, with a bit of awareness and a bit of practice, we can kind of nudge ourselves over into a new relationship with that theme. Does that make sense? And so getting, developing this sense that perhaps we move on from the, the fantasy that we may have that actually this is path, you know, it's, it's kind of practice, 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 and then ping. You know, there's a blinding insight that changes everything forever. That's very rare. That's very rare. It's much more u- usual that we, we see something, we begin to see it, and we kind of start reflecting on it and and seeing what it's like to kind of align our behavior with it and our understanding with it and we just gradually kind of metabolize the insight and that we we kind of practice it as a as a way of looking you know a kind of spectacles that we wear <laughs> you know the spectacles of self-forgiveness rather than self-judgment or the spectacles of kindness or the spectacles of appreciation, or the spectacles of, imp- of recognizing impermanence. You know. So just to have that sense that insights are something to be practiced. <laughs> to be practiced. And we can see that, that again, mindfulness and, and kindness do make us more insight-prone in the universal domain as well as the personal domain. You know, when we really come into the present, you know, if you have a sense right now of coming into the present and, and sensing the body and the being and sensing how that can bring one into contact, say, with the impermanence of things. I, I, we have, have a colleague who, who's, who compares it to being in a car you know, when you're in a car and you look ahead, it looks all quite solid. And when you look backwards, it, it looks quite solid. When you look to the sides, you see how quickly things are changing. Yeah? In the moment. And it's a bit like that with our lives, isn't it? When we look back and look into the fantasy of the future, things can look solid. But actually, when we really come into the present, we start to sense how things are changing moment by moment. And so there is this sense that as we, as we practice um, mindfulness, we practice appreciation, we practice uh, creative engagement and kindness, that insights just, they do come as fruits. And, and again, some of you are having universal insights as well as personal insights here. You know. And these... Uh, are deeply ingrained habits. The habits of misperception are deeply ingrained. The Buddha used the imagery of roots. You know, if, if you're kind of digging up the roots of something, you find the roots of ways of misperceiving kind of run deep. And in a certain way, we could say, or the Buddha said that this path is goes against the stream, goes against the stream of our habits. And this is why uh, he recommended taking insights as contemplations, taking them as ways of looking, taking them as as, uh, perceptions that we practice. And we do this, those who've done metta practice, befriending practice, 
you know, what are we doing in that? If we're using phrases, we're going to, to, to uh, offer some reflections on metta tomorrow and a chance to practice this uh, basic friendliness. And we use phrases there, you know, may I be safe and well, may I be peaceful, may I live with ease and with kindness. You know? What are we doing there? We're practicing a way of looking, aren't we? You know? uh, and we practice it as we come into contact with the pleasant, the more neutral, the more unpleasant. You know? Or the phrase that Martine offered yesterday, of this, too may, this too will pass, you know. What are we doing in that moment where we're practicing a particular way of looking? And so, just to uh, reflect on each of these kind of more universal themes and, and what it's like really to uh, take them as practices. That the the doorway of impermanence is is often presented in the tradition as the doorway into all the different domains of insight. It's said that the Buddha said that better than a hundred years lived without seeing the arising and passing away of things is one day spent seeing their arising and passing. Mm-hmm. This is a message. This is important. <laughs> And so seeing, you know, what it's like deliberately to direct our attention to change, to notice change and impermanence and to let this kind of impress itself on consciousness. The end of a day is a good time to do that. As we, you know, reflect, well, where, where is the mood that you woke up with? Where are this morning's thoughts or yesterday's preoccupations? Where are those those body sensations from two days ago that we thought would never change? Really to kind of take this on, take this on. The, 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 The suitors again and again report this phrase uh, as people have kind of real awakenings of, of insight, whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away. And just to use that as a kind of lens, a contemplation, whatever has the nature to arise will also pa- pass away. The weather, the seasons, different relationships, aspects of our lives, our work patterns. Just using this kind of refrain, whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away. And of course, when um, we're in the middle of a contraction in the, in the cycle, it's good news, isn't it? You know, And we have a sense of, okay, I'm in this... Uh, state of contraction, but this too will pass. You know, whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away. You know. And uh, you know there can be a certain kind of contentment that that comes with that, or a certain ease, the equanimity that comes with that. And you know, 
to acknowledge the poignancy of this insight into impermanence. You know, the way in which uh, loss is woven into the very fabric of all of our lives. And part of uh, kind of metabolizing this truth more deeply into our being is really to let the heart be touched by it. You know, to acknowledge the poignancy or the, the sorrow that's there as we kind of contemplate whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away. And as we do that, we can see just how important these practices of enjoyment and kindness and compassion are. We could say that actually they are indispensable for the journey of insight. You know, enjoyment, appreciative joy is not some kind of optional extra. <laughs> you know, we can see without that kind of nourishment and resourcing, it's easy for our sense of things to get distorted. It's easy for the insight into impermanence actually to be distorted into something that, that closes us rather than opens us. So really infusing reflections on impermanence with kindness, appreciative joy, compassion. And as we do that, we may begin to notice that, that there is, you know, it, it begins to inform how we experience things, how we experience the tonalities. Martin asked me just to kind of revise, he's had a couple of notes, just wanting just to again describe what we're meaning by this tonality. And, and that what we're not talking about here is emotion. So the Vedana, the feeling tones are not emotions. They're something much more kind of basic than that. They're the, they're the, the kind of basic sense we get of pleasantness, unpleasantness, new, neutral. Can we get that? We don't have to think, or go, mm, is this, you know, is this pleasant, unpleasant or neutral? It's, it's a more immediate sense of experience is pleasant, unpleasant and neutral in each of our six senses. So the five regular senses and the mind. So emotions, moods and thoughts are to the mind what objects are to the eyes or sounds are to the ears. And you know, it's, it's a very, I think it's such a, a brilliant simplifying that the Buddha did in, in kind of including treating the mind in this context as a sense organ because you can say well every experience we've ever had has been mediated through our six senses and has come in one of three flavors you know these kind of basic patterns pleasant unpleasant uh, and neither and as we begin to metabolize the sense of of impermanence we can have a sense that you know this is unpleasant and I know it will pass. You know, this mood, this contraction is unpleasant and I know it will pass. This difficult situation is at work is unpleasant and I know it will pass. You know? and, and also the sense, of, okay, well this is pleasant and I'm going to enjoy it but not try to grasp after it. <laughs> you know? 
take, take uh, William Blake's words, he or she who binds to herself a joy doth the winged life destroy. She who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise. And so we get that sense of what it is to, to kind of kiss the joys, to, to kind of enjoy them in the moment without grasping onto them and trying to kind of plan for their intensifying in the future. Yeah. There is a Gaia House recipe book, in case you were wondering. You know? yeah. we, we can also get a sense of this impermanence as, as a a moment-by-moment moment contemplation in, in each of these six sense doors. You know. So just to have the sense of, of sight, sound, taste, touch, smell, and mind as flickering and changing moment-by-moment. Can you sense that even if you're looking at something and it looks relatively stable, the kind of seeing of it is actually at subtle levels changing. And the Buddha compared these, these feeling tones as being like raindrops on water. They're changing that fast. So, you know, don't expect to catch them all. <laughs> right? you know? But just to sense the, 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 the changing nature and textures of our sensory experience. What this does is we can see that it kind of undermines or or shows the that it doesn't make sense to cling and grasp in the way that we so often do. To bind to ourselves, to try to bind to ourselves the joys. We, we sense how the mind kind of projects a mirage of solidity. The Buddha compared perception to being like a mirage. Notice the, the mirror, mirage of solidity that we can project onto the end of the retreat. Can you notice that? Whether you're looking forward to it or not looking forward to it. You know, it, we kind of think of it as some kind of moment. Well, when does it end, the retreat? Is it when the final bell goes? Or when you're having lunch? Or when you drive out the car park? What is it that I'm kind of building up to be something, you know. Actually, it's all going to be changing. Does that make sense? Can you, can you sense that? And in a very kind of concise way, the Buddha um, described the way impermanence works. He said, in seeing, this is a very, this goes very quickly from, Naught to a hundred, but he says, in seeing impermanence, the mind does not cling. When the mind doesn't cling, it isn't agitated. When it I isn't agitated, it naturally attains nibbana. But do we sense what he means there? You know, it isn't agitated in. In, in kind of pursuing and avoiding, grasping and rejecting at the macro or the micro level. You know. And this kind of reflection on impermanence that, that, that runs through the whole tradition and that, that needs to be contextualized with compassion and joy 
and, and kindness and equanimity. We can see how it leads to the second of these kind of liberating insights, the, the insight into unsatisfactoriness. Because what that's saying is that you know, no experience can fully satisfy because experience is impermanent and fleeting and changeable. You know? That contentment is not going to come through getting things and getting rid of things. You know? But actually through an orientation to a compassionate, appreciative equanimity. Can we sense that? You know? it's, it's so this reflection that things are, are unsatisfactory, it so cuts at the root of kind of consumerism, doesn't it? Because we've all had these kind of thousands of messages that if you get this, then you'll feel happy, you know, complete, you know, no longer unworthy, <laughs> lovable, you know, whatever the kind of nibbanic offering is of that particular product. And actually, uh, really to see uh, see this is is so deeply freeing because it it calms the pursuit and avoidance, the grasping and the rejecting. And you know we can we can practice this. We can practice this. The the practice of allowing things and letting things be. You know, which is which is part of contemporary mindfulness courses like MBSR, mindfulness-based stress reduction, and mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. You know, have sessions called allowing and letting be. You know. And we can feel, and some of you have been really experiencing this, of just kind of allowing experience to be, breathing with it rather than bracing against it. You know. Just notice what effect that has in terms of the contraction and the expansion. When I allow experience to, to be the changing dance of feeling tones that it is. The sense that, you know, I could dot, 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 but I don't need to. You know, I could spend the next 20 minutes kind of ruminating about that irritating person at work. But actually, that would be unsatisfactory and I really don't need to, you know. Or I could spend, you know, this, the second half of the morning planning how I could get to the front of the lunch queue. But actually, you know what? I don't need to. <laughs> Can you feel that? How our system kind of wants to pursue the pleasant and push away the unpleasant. And, and thinking that it's that, at some level, that will bring the happiness and the contentment. But actually that sense of, you know, there's more kind of, dissatisfaction in that than in actually just allowing things to take their natural course. You know. Not that this is not a, a kind of denying of passion and commitment and creativity and you know all that we put our hearts into but it can I also have the mode in which I can allow and let things be. So it's a kind of flexibility of responsiveness. This is part of the creativity. It's not that allowing and letting things be is always the right thing to do. You know. 
if your child is running towards the road, that is not the right thing to do, you know? Or if you're engaged in a, you know, passionate, creative project or activist campaign, you know? It's not a kind of recipe for pacifism and quietism. But it's can I know that as part of my repertoire of creative responses? Know how to, if you like, take the, the dissatisfaction and distress kind of levels down through an equanimity, a compassionate equanimity. And this is part of what the, the practice that we've spoken about, you know, just relaxing the body, relaxing the body. When we're on retreat and the impingements are just much less than in daily life, can I let my nervous system just quieten? through having enough sense of ground to allow my experience to be as it is. And part of what get, may get highlighted by that is, is this basic kind of algorithm that is at the core of the Buddha's teaching and in this, these four noble truths, I sometimes think of it like a bit of coding really, that, that it is the reactivity, it's the craving and aversion, the grasping and rejecting that gives rise to the dukkha, that gives rise to the distress, the dissatisfaction, the discontent. That the more reactivity there is, the more distress there is, the less reactivity there is, the less distress there is. Can we feel that? This is this is really, you know, this is this is part of the, the contemplation of this this teaching on unsatisfactoriness is, is what gives what intensifies it and what quietens it. Can I know that in my bones? And as we investigate that, as we kind of inquire into, well, how does it feel to grasp and to reject? If I really go for it and grasp after something, you know or really get aversive and reject. How does that feel? Is that pleasant or unpleasant? Well, just like we said, the, 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 the feeling tone, the tonality of mindfulness is pleasant, so the tonality of grasping, even for something that we think of as pleasant, the tonality of grasping is unpleasant, isn't it? I mean, think about when we really want something we don't have. <laughs> You know, even if you think in terms of kind of shopping, I want that thing. You know, the wanting is unpleasant, isn't it? There's a kind of contraction in it. You know, there's a kind of tightening around it. And as we investigate that tightening, we can notice oh, a few things kind of co-arise here. So there's the wanting, the grasping after the idea of having that thing, the, the body contracts, the mind space contracts. We can see this as part of the kind of evolutionary function of wanting to get, the, get more of the pleasant. There's a kind of focusing in on it, isn't there? Yeah? You know, and if you think of, you know, you're wanting to buy that, well, we could think of, you know, iPhone or <laughs> Martin Gavis or that jumper. It could just be a jumper in the shop. And and you have a sense of, okay, I'm, really, I'm going to go and get that thing. And what happens to the feeling tone of that? Doesn't it get pumped up? 
So you go into the shop, and this is why, of course, Paris Station has all these iPhones on. It's like they're kind of glowing. The, 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 because I really want it, it, it kind of gets really very pleasant. <laughs> the, the feeling tone of that fantasy of having it. Again, I do hope this isn't just me who experiences this. Do we all notice this? I mean, it's how advertising works, isn't it? It kind of pumps up the Vedana, pumps up the feeling tone. Notice that what also happens is I become a self who wants. So the sense of selfing co-arises with the craving and the kind of wanting and the unpleasantness. So there's, there's the selfing and there's the othering of the object that I want. Or, of course, this also happens with something we really want to get rid of. Selfing and othering, whether that othering is a person or a thing, or a pain in the knee or a painful memory, they co-arise, they get stronger together. The more I don't want to be in this traffic jam, the more unpleasant the traffic jam becomes. Can you feel that? This is really helpful insight that the Buddha gives, that the unpleasantness and pleasantness of things is kind of pumped up by the craving and the aversion, the grasping and the rejecting. We may also notice that a sense of time gets kind of compressed or expanded. Some of you have been noticing about the perception of time on the retreat. Do you notice when the, the mind is, is kind of a bit bored or a bit versive, aversive, it feels like the time feels endless. Oh my goodness, we're only on day two. Just so much like, how am I going to get through it? You know. And then at times when you're enjoying being here, what, how does time feel then? It feels like, oh my goodness, I've only got another day and a half of this and I'm really loving it. You know, oh, I wish I could be here always. And we start to see how time too is a dependent arising. The perception of time is dependent on the mood or mental state of the moment, just like the perception of self is, just like the perception of other is, just like the feeling tones are. So that these, these kind of factors all uh, contract together and expand together. Contract and become more solid and more obstructive and expand and become less solid and more open and more spacious. Can we feel that? That when there's a contraction, it's a systemic contraction rather than just one factor, isn't it? Yeah? And that we could think in terms of self and and... I think it was Dinal that, that raised this the other day, the sense of, well, how do, how do we understand self in this context? Well, seeing self more as a spectrum of selfing. You know, when I'm getting really kind of contracted in grasping and rejecting, the selfing is getting stronger and stronger. You know, when I'm having a temper tantrum, it's really strong, you know. And part of what we get to explore and retreat is some of the quieter ends of the spectrum when the selfing really dissolves, you know, starts to become much more subtle. And we may have the sense of being out and looking at the view and it's not me looking at the view. There is just looking, appreciating, enjoying, openness, spaciousness and ease. The quietening of selfing, the quietness, the quietening of distress. 
the intensifying of selfing, the intensifying of distress. And, you know, this insight can come, and some of you have been really kind of noticing this. It can come through the, the practice of, of the mindfulness and, and the, the kindness and friendliness, and we can practice this as a way of looking. We can practice seeing, for instance, body, was saying yesterday, body, rather than it being me, just body, bodying. Contemplate the body as the body, says the Buddha in his teachings on mindfulness. Contemplate moods as just moods, rather than being my anger, my depression, my anxiety. Oh, this is just the weather. What is it to see thoughts as not me, not mine? These are just thoughts. Maybe they're thought buses, you know. Come along and want to take us for a ride and they don't have to be me or mine. This little phrase, not me, not mine, can be very helpful for just changing the relationship with different aspects of experience. So there is a a kind of letting go kind of releasing, a kind of allowing experience just to be what it is without being clung to as I, me or mine. That was the Buddha's summary of his teaching when someone asked him, give me the quick version. Yeah? He said, nothing should be clung to as I, me or mine. And it said that he said to his son, he said, um, Everything should be seen. Contemplate every aspect of experience as it really is with perfect wisdom thus. This is not mine. This is not me. This is not myself. Not as a kind of ideology or a kind of philosophical statement, but as a way of liberating, a way of looking that has tremendous potential to, to quieten distress and dissatisfaction and to bring a greater sense of freedom and openness. And so you know, some of you have been practicing seeing habits as just habits, kind of programs on the computer running off rather than taking them personally. Even the habit of self-judgment seems so personal. What is it if it's more like, okay, thank you for your opinion, rather than believing it as a verdict of who I am. Intentions. Even the felt sense of self that we can have, can, as you sit here now, you may have a sense of kind of, well, there's me here. But even that, perhaps, is, is just a perception that can also be not me, not mine. We'll see how it is to view it like that. Noticing that that this is a teaching of not-self rather than of no-self. The Buddha isn't denying the existence of self. There are plenty of places in the the teachings when he speaks about the perception of self as a really valuable perception. Talked about taking care of ourselves that being an important aspect of our practice of kindness. But it is about seeing that this thing that we kind of so easily 
view through a mirage of solidity as self is actually what he calls a dependent arising. It arises and strengthens and it quietens and opens up dependent on conditions, dependent on changing conditions. Kind of like a rainbow or, or the kind of rainbow pattern that you get with water and sunlight. You know, it, it arises. There's no denying it arises, it appears. But also to see that when conditions change, it also dissolves. So really this, uh, this exploration, you know, the Buddha framed his whole teaching as being about uh, understanding what gives rise to distress and dissatisfaction and what brings it to an end. And encourages us to make that a, a really experiential inquiry where we're really investigating what are the different aspects that kind of intensify the contractions and what enable a more kind of compassionate equanimity. Um, a, a greater allowing of the cycles of expansion and contraction, a breathing with them rather than bracing against them. And what we kind of may discover is that as, as we cultivate this willingness to let things be as they are, to engage creatively with them, to engage compassionately with them, it doesn't lead to the world being any less colourful, mysterious, alive. In fact, it liberates our experience to be more colourful, mysterious and alive because it's less bound by our habits, less bound by our distortions of, of view and understanding. In many ways, you know, we, we see and can sense for ourselves that, that kindness and compassion are the kind of activity of insight. The more we kind of understand the way we are, the way things are, the personal and the universal, the more a, a kind of compassionate, kind, appreciative equanimity is the kind of only, it's the only thing that makes sense as a response to this life that we're living. Thich Nhat Hanh so beautifully summarizes as having a very cool head and a very warm heart. And we discover that, that cultivating a very cool head and a very warm heart is, is within the capability of each of us. And that we can truly, as we practice in just the way that we're doing over these days, develop a heart that feels increasingly loving and increasingly free. So just as we sit here, let's just have a few moments of silence.
So thank you for your attention, thank you for your attention. And we have a period of walking before our final sitting of the day. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.